You are listening to the Tom Elif Podcast. Tom Elif pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Elif. I believe half of our choir and orchestra are better than most choirs and orchestras in their completion. I praise the Lord for these wonderful, wonderful musicians who bless us. So much in the Bible about music and about praising God through music, and I am so thrilled that uh, each time I stand here to share from the Word of God that it seems it is inevitably preceded by great praise and great worship. Thank you, Dominic men. Thank you, musicians. Let me ask you, if you will, please to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Once again, I want to welcome those of you who visit with us this morning. Of course, today is Memorial Day. And um, there are probably a lot of very sad bass fishermen today when the clouds came up and the rain began to pour. But uh, on the other hand, there are a lot of happy people here in church this morning, and I'm delighted to see you. Let me uh, tell you that the subject matter this morning... I think is more than fitting for the day because we're thinking together about how to win over sin. Some of you perhaps a couple of days ago watched the television documentary on D-Day, America's Invasion there at Normandy. And I'll tell you, it was such a stirring thing to me, the personal testimonies of the men, women, uh, just the recapping for us once again of that, that amazing, amazing day a day when not only was freedom struck for, but also a day when so many men were willing to lay down their lives for the cause of freedom. And of course, our Lord Jesus laid down his life on the cross of Calvary so that you and I might be freed from the penalty and ultimately from the practice of sin. Now, as you know, the first 14 verses of this third chapter of Colossians tell us how to win over sin. And for the last several services, we have just immersed ourselves in these verses. One of the most perplexing things about the Christian life has to do with winning over sin. If, indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ's death on Calvary paid for the penalty of sin, because the wages of sin is death, and set us free from the dominion of sin, for sin shall no more have dominion over those who believe in Christ, the Bible says. Why is it then, being set free from the penalty and set free from the power of sin, why is it that we struggle with the ongoing practice of sin? And so these 14 verses tell us how to win over sin. And maybe in your own life, Right now, you want to think just for a moment about those particular areas where you find yourself struggling the most often. Perhaps there is some bully sin in your life that seems to beat you up, meet you at every corner. And no matter how many resolutions you've made, you have struggled with winning over the practice of sin. Now this morning, we're going to look at the fourth step in a four-step strategy for winning over sin. As a matter of fact, in the first four verses, we find four elements to consider. And then in verse 5, we find five enemies that we are to crucify. He says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, which means an inordinate affection, or lust, covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. 
And then as we continue to read in verses 8 through 11, we find six errors to cast off. He says, put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. And the next verse he says, and lying. So now with your Bible open, will you stand with me as we begin reading with verse 12. We have four elements to consider, five enemies to crucify, six errors to cast off, and now this morning, seven excellent virtues in which to clothe yourself. Now, there is no way that any person here is going to ultimately win over the practice of sin unless you spend time focusing upon these seven excellent virtues in which to clothe yourself. It'd be like going out on a, baref- uh, going out on a battlefield barefoot or without having your helmet or your, your armor on. These are seven excellent virtues in which to clothe yourself. Verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God, in other words, you've been chosen by God to be part of his army, you're holy and beloved. And then here's this word, bowels of mercies, literally a heart of compassion. The word there refers to all the visceral organs, your, where you have your feelings. And so he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness or completion. Above all these things, on top of them, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. Father in heaven, my prayer is that you indeed would stir our hearts on this day. Father, we recall with sadness the many, many thousands of people who have given their lives so that we might live in a free nation. Lord, it grieves us to see how carelessly we treat the freedoms which have been so bestowed upon us at such great cost. Father, we know that the freedom from sin has been bestowed upon us at the cost of the life of your Son, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning that you would stir our hearts, showing us that sin does not need to have dominion over us, that we do not need to live practicing sin, that we really cannot excuse ourselves any longer if we truly have believed in Christ, for you have given us all we need to conquer the activities of sin in our life. Father, show us this morning these seven excellent virtues in which we must clothe ourselves if we are to win over sin. And I pray these things in the wonderful, matchless, saving name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Keep your Bible open now to Colossians chapter 3. As we think about these seven excellent virtues in which we must clothe ourselves if we are to win over the practice of sin. Don't you have in your life some sinful practice? Maybe it's a thought. Maybe it's not something you do. Maybe it's something that you do not do that is right to do. It is a sin of omission. As James says, if a man knows what is right and does it not to him, it is sin. Don't you have something like that in your life? that has plagued you perhaps for many, many years. And it seems like that woman with the issue of blood, that no matter where you've gone, 
no matter what you've read, no matter what conferences you've attended or counseling you have received, you are not better these days, but really you find yourself in a worse predicament than ever before. Because you look back across your life and you say, why can't I win over that particular sin? A thought, a deed, an omission, as well as a commission. Do you have some sin like that in your life? Could it be that one of the reasons you are failing to win over that sin is because you have not employed the strategy for victory which the Lord has so clearly laid out for us in the Scripture? And so we have looked at the four elements to consider. We have looked at these five errors which we must crucify, and or rather these five enemies we must crucify, and these six errors we must cast off. And now this morning, let me say it's not just enough to do away with those enemies and those errors. If we are to win over sin, we must clothe ourselves in these seven excellent virtues. Now, this morning, I would like for you to go with me on an imaginary journey. I'd like for you just to go back to your home and think about the process by which you uh, clothe yourself in the morning. Uh, this morning, I'm sure that at some point you opened the door of a closet and you looked at the various clothes that were there. You had probably more than one option. I don't know, sometimes uh, you look at a closet and you say, there's, there's not a, I don't have an earthly thing to wear. I heard a man one time, he said his, his wife must be an angel because she was always in the air, up in the air about something and always harping on something and always complaining she didn't have an earthly thing to wear. He said, does that make her an angel preacher? Well, I don't think so. Most of us, though, when we look in a closet, uh, we see options. And I want you to think about these options. Well, what do you do? Out of those options, they may be just a few, maybe many, maybe just one or two. But out of those options, you decide what you are going to put on. And so you take these clothes and you put these clothes on. And then before you leave the house, hopefully... You stand in front of a mirror. I question that sometimes on Sunday mornings. I stand up here and look at you, and you look at me, and we question, did, did he really look in the mirror before he left the house this morning? And um, I remember getting to, to work one day, and I had obviously not looked in the mirror because I had on a, a suit coat that went with one suit and suit pants that went with another suit, and the suits did not match at all. And uh, I'd gotten up early and left. My wife hadn't, you know, given me the once-over. And I had, I just raced out of the door. But when I got to the office, there were quite a few people who were willing to tell me that I need to go home and to dress. I, uh, I used to help Ruffin snow. Some, some of you do not know this, but Ruffin has a problem with being colorblind. And uh, in college, I helped him to dress, didn't I? He would, he'd get up and he'd put on a, a blue coat and a nice red tie. And I'd say, Ruffin, you know that tie is brown. And so he'd go to the closet and get his brown tie and put it on with his blue coat and go to school. And you, you appreciate that, don't you, Brother Ruffin? Well, most of us look in a mirror and we, we sort of straighten up our clothes, you know, get our tie straight or make sure that our hair is not mussed up and then we're on the way to work. Now, I want you to think about that process this morning as we think together about these seven excellent virtues in which we must clothe ourselves. Now, what I'd like for you to consider is this, that when you open the closet this morning, or any morning, if you want to win over sin, you ought to deliberately pick all seven of these and put them on, all right? So first of all, if you will with me, 
Let's picture these virtues. They're pictured for us right here in the Scripture, beginning with verse 12. Here are seven excellent virtues. What are they? First of all, he says you need to take down and put on a heart of compassion. We have here, put on therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies you may have there. Literally, it means an innermost being. As I said, that word really is a word which refers to all of your visceral organs, but it means a heart. It has to do with, with where a person feels. He has his emotions. And so he says the first thing that you ought to take down and put on is a heart of compassion. Now look up here just for a moment. You may have written that down there in the margin of your Bible or underlined it, but let's just think together about this heart of compassion. What does it mean? It means basically, I want what's best for you and for other people in this earth. It means that my first not thought is not a thought of myself and what I can get from you. I do not see you as a means to an end, as someone I can use in order to get what I want. I see you as the end, the object of all that I do. I have a heart of compassion for you. That's what it means. That you basically, as you look at the people in your family, instead of saying, look, what can they do for me? What can I get out of them? What can I get out of my customers? How can I twist people? How can I manipulate, pe manipulate people? It means I want their best. I have a heart of compassion. You know, it's difficult for us in America to fully understand what it means to have a heart of compassion because, um, you know, you drive down the street and uh, here is someone that is standing there and he says, um, Christian man, uh, out of work, needs money, God bless you. And, um, you know, you're a Christian, and here's a Christian man. He's supposed to be out of work. He needs money. And he's, boy, what a dedicated man. He's asking God to bless me. The only problem is I've seen that man on about five other street corners, and I've actually known of people to roll down their windows and offer him work, but he doesn't want to work. In fact, he's got a pretty good job. He's making more than minimum wage just standing at the door or standing on the, the island there of the street corner saying, I'm a Christian man who needs work. Now, we have become in our nation immune to this heart of compassion because we're not really sure whether what we're seeing is real. We go to sleep at night with the latest death count in some country that is ravaged by war or hearing about some plague which is taking the lives of people listening about all the murders that have taken place in our city and cities across the nation. And we hear so much of this that after a while it's easy for us to quit being compassionate, to quit believing the best in other people. We have uh, many men in our church who are in the law enforcement uh, as a profession. And I, I feel for those men. I pray for them often by name because these are men who spend much of their life among the most sordid kind of people, on the seamy side of life. And if they are not careful, it is easy to lose, isn't it, after a while, that heart of compassion, believing the best about other people, wanting the best for other people. And so he says, the first thing that you ought to put on in the morning is, look, I want the best for other people. 
Everyone is a creation of God. God has a plan for the life of every man, every woman. Every person that I see has been loved by God. Jesus has loved them. Christ died on the cross so that they might have their sins forgiven. I want to put on this heart of compassion. That's the first excellent virtue that we picture. Secondly, look over here on the next hanger. He says, kindness. Kindness. I want you to think about that word with me just for a moment because this word in the original language means that you are, now get this, naturally, or maybe I should say even supernaturally, disposed to kindness. Let me, let me put it this way. It means that you are kind and you don't have to force yourself to be kind. I, uh, I meet people sometimes who do not have a disposition to kindness. They have a disposition to anger. They don't know why, but they just get up in the morning and they're angry. You can see it on their face. Their natural inclination is to be angry with other people. Somebody pulls in front of them on the freeway, they lay on a horn, stick their head out the window, shake their fist, tell them that there must be a shriner practicing for parade. Uh, you know, you're slowing me. They're, they're not, it's not going to slow them now. It's not really going to do much to them. It's just a way of saying, look, I'm angry at you. I'm angry at you. Short, curt words uh, to people, just disposed to be angry, just looking at someone to just cut off. Now, what he's saying here is that if you want to win over sin, you're going to have to put on kindness. You're going to have to have a general disposition to kindness, unforced. You're not saying, okay, 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 I'm, gonna I'm not going to look foul of my handle. You know, if your wives ever said to your husband, now, sweetheart, when we go over here, I know that you don't want to be at this meal. I know that you don't want to do this. I don't know that you don't want to be at that, that meeting or with those people or with that company, but I want you to be nice. I want you to be nice. Probably no man's ever had his wife tell him anything like that. Or when the kids come over here, I want you to be sweet. I want you to have a good temperament. I don't want you to be ugly. I don't want you to be impatient. Sometimes I've, I've heard men say to their wives, you know, I know it's been a long day. I know you aren't anticipating company coming over, but I want you, if you will, please, just to be gracious when they come. Now, what this means is this. I am kind, but I don't have to force myself to be kind. I'm kind just by general disposition. And let me tell you something, friends. If you are an individual who finds yourself in an arena of conflict... Here's something you need to know, and you need to employ this truth. When it comes to resolving conflict, now I'm going to tell you something that, that you need to think about seriously. When it comes to resolving conflict, your initial attitude is more important than the facts. Your initial attitude is more important than the facts. You say, well, I just want the truth. If we get that, a lot of people say, if we could just get to the truth, we could resolve this conflict. But I know of a lot of people who enter into a conflict and they find out the truth, but the conflict is not over because they don't have a general disposition to settle it. They don't have a general disposition to kindness. And what this means is I believe enough in the sovereignty of God that God's running the show in my life, that I don't have to demand a pound of flesh from you. I don't have to get back at you. I can put on a general, unforced disposition to kindness. Some people are not like that. You know, a guy went to, to work, and he was short with one of his fellow employees, and the guy said, man, did you wake up grouchy this morning? He said, no, I left her in bed asleep. 
Some people are just grouchy. I mean, they're just, they do not have that general disposition to kindness. And so that's what he's saying, put on kindness. All right, look at the third thing here. Hanging there in the rack is also humility. Humility. Now, as the Apostle Paul is speaking about humility here, he is referring to literally a grounded mind. There are two words put together in the Greek language which mean the earth or the ground, a grounded mind. Anytime you meet a person who has been offended because he has been denied a, a right, something he believes he deserves, you're visiting with a person, you're meeting a person who does not characterize humility. You see, this floor is as down as you can get. Now, you can step on something that's laid here on this floor, but it's not going to go any further down because it's down as far as it can get. All that can be, all that you can do to that is to lift it up. You can't push it down any farther. Now, the Apostle Paul said, I've learned something about how to get along with people. He said, I've learned that if I would give up all of my rights, ground my mind, say, look, I, I'm just blessed to be alive. I'm a child of God. I'm on my way to heaven. This, this is such a brief time here on this earth. Anything anybody does good for me, well, I'll consider that not something I deserve. I'll consider that just a favor. I'll consider that just a blessing. Now, there's a person who has put on humility. And so he says, make sure that you take out a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. Look at number four. This is the layered look this morning, meekness. Meekness. Now, meekness is different from humility. When you read all these books about how to become a hard-charging businessman and how to succeed and how to get to the top, generally you will not find in that book an insistence that you be a meek person because most individuals consider meekness to be the same as weakness. But weak, weakness and meekness have nothing in common. The word here that is translated meekness is a word which means in its original, literally, halter broken. It refers to an animal which is very strong but has a strength that can be focused in, in, a, in, a, in a purpose, pulling a wagon or pulling a plow, pulling a sledge, doing, or being ridden. You see, other than that, it's just wild. It may be strong, but it's just wild, and it just has no purpose. It has no usefulness whatsoever. But once that strong animal becomes halter broken, he does not lose his strength. What he has learned to do is to have his strength harnessed to useful, useful functions. And so he's saying that when you, you clothe yourself in these excellent virtues, you need to make up your mind at the beginning of the day that you are going to put on meekness. You're going to say, Lord, I want to be halter broken. Now, the kind of animal that a farmer would look for uh, to pull a plow or a wagon would be the kind of animal that you could just lay the reins down along the right side and that horse would just gee to the right or haw to the left. You know, you didn't even know I knew those words. I've, I've done this. And that animal would turn right or left, not because you yanked on the reins, but because you just laid the bridle, laid the reins right down alongside the neck. Now, what he's saying here is this. You need to be of this disposition. You need to be so sensitive to God that the slightest indication from Him of direction for your life is one toward which you turn. This is how to win over sin, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness. Then notice this word, long-suffering. 
long-suffering. Now, we've already seen part of this word earlier. It is the word thumos, wrath, but it is preceded by the prefix macro. Now, not micro. We speak of microorganisms, which we look at through a microscope. But this is macro. This is the long look. And so when it says long-suffering, what it means is this. You have made up your mind that there's not going to be in your life some kind of limit. Okay, that's it. That's the final straw that permits you to behave in an unseemly or irrational fashion. See, most people say, well, I'll go this far, but boy, if you ever do this, you will have pushed me over the edge, and I'm leaving, or I'm going to ball you out, or I'm going to fly off the handle. Well, I deserve to do this. I mean, for seven days you've been saying this, or for the last month you've been acting this way. This is it. I'm splitting. We're out of here. This is over. What it means is this. I have not established in my life a limit and said, you push me to this limit, you can't push me any further, I'm going to turn and retaliate. So he says, you must be long-suffering. After all, think how long-suffering the Lord Jesus is with you and with me. He has not abandoned us, and if anybody deserved abandoning, it has been us because we have given him plenty of cause to do that, haven't we? And so he says long-suffering. Then two more words. Look at this word, this, this excellent virtue. He says forbearance. That means literally to stand with someone and to keep standing with someone, to forbear, to stand with them. He says, I know that maybe you deserve this. I know that maybe all that you've said to your life um, has been about, has not been honoring, but I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to forbear. I'm going to... Well, <clears throat> let me put it this way. I, I have... Uh, I remember reading about this lady who was uh, uh, pushing a little girl in a grocery cart through the grocery store. And this little girl was just... I mean, she was just reaching for everything and screaming and grabbing for everything and trying to... And the mother just kept saying, calm down, Gladys. Calm down, Gladys. Now, Gladys, don't lose your temper. And this girl would just scream some more and fuss some more and try to get out of the grocery. And she said, now, Gladys, slow down. Just be careful. And one of these, uh, these modern moms, you know, who's read Dr. Spock and, and doesn't believe in, in dealing with children came along and she said, I just want to congratulate you. You know, I don't believe in, in corporal punishment at all. And I think it's just wonderful that, that you have a meaningful conversation with your little daughter here. As, even as she's losing her temper and, and fussing a lot, I just think that, that you're telling your little daughter Gladys here to just be careful and to be slow and to calm down. She said, that's not my daughter Gladys. I'm Gladys. And if she screams one more time, I'm going to knock her head off. Well, forbearance is a little different than that, just saying calm down. Forbearance means this. I believe the best in you. I remember my son saying to me one time, he said, Dad, one of the most meaningful things you ever told me was that you would never give up on me, that you would never give up on me. God doesn't give up on us, does he? He said, one of the things that means the most is that you would never, ever give up on me. That means to forbear. And then notice he says, forgiveness. He says, forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel, he said, here's an example. You have a quarrel against any? Even as Christ forgave you. Let me ask you this question. Do you have to approve of what a person did in order to forgive them? No. 
Christ doesn't approve of our sin, but he forgives us. You see, the reason that some of you have not forgiven others, you have a quarrel with them. The reason that some of you have not forgiven them is that you think that if you forgive them, that you're saying to them, I believe what you did is all right. That's not true. To forgive means as Christ forgave me. Actually, the word is the same root, charizomai, from which we get charis, or grace. Just as Christ looked at me with all of my imperfections, behavior which was not fitting, absolute sin in my life, and said, I don't approve of the sin, but I will bring forgiveness to you. So he said, you as forgiven people ought to forgive others. And so he has pictured for us these seven excellent virtues. Hanging there in the closet, before you leave your room every morning, you ought to put on these seven excellent virtues because these are going to keep you from sinning. This heart of compassion, this general disposition to kindness, this humility, this meekness, this long-suffering, this forbearance, this forgiveness is going to eliminate in your life the kinds of attitudes which will produce the very sins that have gripped you by the throat and that you're practicing now. They are root causes for many of the sins that you commit. And so there are these seven excellent virtues pictured for us. Secondly, he says, put on these virtues. Put on these virtues. Now, the word for put on here is in duo. It means literally to immerse yourself in these virtues. We get our word in due. You shall be endued with power. Immerse yourself in these virtues. How many of you parents have had the experience of of being amazed at how your children will race out the door on a cold day without the proper clothing. Why, you can't go to school with just that on. Have you ever said that? Well, that's not, that's not warm enough for a day like that. You can't play outside without your heavy coat or without a jacket. Or you're not going to that game unless you've got on, you know, clothes that's, that's liable to rain and you've got to have something that's waterproof. And kids, you know, they don't care. I mean, they're just getting ready and they're going to go. What keeps us from being clothed? What keeps us from putting on these virtues? Well, it may be like a child. We may be immature. Or we may be careless. Or we may have a lack of concern for other people. We may have no thought at all as to how we relate to God or how we relate to other people. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this. If you want to win over the sin that you are practicing in your life now, day by day, you are going to have to make a deliberate, determined effort. You see, the Apostle Paul is not saying, just, you know, just lie down, just give up, and you'll live a sinless life. You'll have victory over sin. He says, no, I want you to be a warrior against those things in your life which are damaging to you. And so make a deliberate, determined effort to take out of the closet of the Scripture these qualities of Christ and deliberately put them on. This morning, I want to have a heart of compassion. I want to be filled with kindness. I want my life to be characterized by humility and by meekness and by forbearance. I want to be the kind of person who has long-suffering and is willing to forgive. A determined disposition. I will put these on. Now, the thing that I want you to see this morning, most importantly about this passage, is that there is a way to perfect these virtues in your life. We've pictured them. We see these seven virtues. 
we see the commandment here that we are to put them on, but then he says perfect these virtues. Look at verse 14. Above all these things, the, the, the little uh, word there, epi, means on top of all of this, over all of this, put on charity you may have. It's agape, the word love. It's the kind of love that God puts in our hearts for him and for others. Put on love, which is the bond. And that word sundesmos means literally, it's a, well, it's, it's very interesting. It's a reference to a ligament. What do ligaments do in your body? Ligaments hold your bones together. If you didn't have ligaments, well, you just have a bunch of bones in a bag. But those ligaments hold your bones together, give you cohesion, give you coordination. And so he says, you take all of these um, virtues, and on top of those, remember that you exercise them with the love of God because when you do that, then they begin to operate properly. They are the bond of perfectness. That is, they bring completion to the body of Christ when you operate with love. The Bible says perfect love cast out all fear. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound or a healthy mind. The Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. If there is love there, it can always work. Now, here's the picture, you know. You open the closet... You've seen these seven excellent virtues pictured there for you. From those seven, you have chosen them. You have put them on. And now you're going to step in front of the mirror of the Word of God, and you're going to perfect them. How do you perfect them? How do you put the finishing touches on them? You do it by applying the love of God, receiving the love of God, expressing the love of God to other people. That's how you sort of get your tie straight, make your suit look right. I remember hearing about a man who, uh, toward the close of a day was out of town on a very important business engagement and realized he had forgotten his suit. And so he went by a men's clothing store and uh, he went in and told the guy, he said, look, he said, I'm in a, I've got a real problem. He said, I need a suit. I need a good-looking suit. But he said, I need it for tonight. And the man said, look, we don't have a tailor here. There's no way in the world that we're going to be able to fit you. He said, look, do as, do as best you can. And so the man brought out a suit that almost fit him and the man looked at it and he said, but I've got a problem here. He said, this, this sleeve is too long. He said, that's okay. He said, just, when you stand around, just sort of hold your hand over here and pull the sleeve up. I think I said, well, that, that works pretty good. And he said, uh, but this lapel is too long. He said, no problem. He said, just pull it up, put your chin on it, hold your sleeve over like that. It'll look good. He said, but this, this pant leg over here is too long. He said, no problem. He said, when you walk, he said, just, just hold that with this hand and put your... Chin over here, put this here. And the guy said, well, he said, it does look like it fits pretty good. So he walked out, and one guy looked over at him who was across the street and said, man, look at that poor fellow. And somebody else said, yeah, but have you ever seen a suit that fits so well as that guy's suit? Now, what he's saying here is this. Before you leave the house, before you get out and go on uh, your way, you need to say, now, wait a minute, Lord, I'm going to do just a, I, I just need an attitude check. <laughs> do you put any thought into your disposition for the day? Do you at all? Do you give it any thought whatsoever? You're, get, you're getting ready to go out and do battle. Here is the prince of darkness, Satan, the god of this age, the prince of this earth. He is unleashing a grand plan to do everything he can to destroy every witness that you have. 
I mean, Satan has, he has a determined plan. He, he spent billions of dollars of this world's money on glossy, advertising, appealing things, events, people he's going to put in your life that will seek to destroy every bit of witness that you have. Do you dare just get up carelessly and without any thought to how you've dressed? You wouldn't do that. Normally, you just wouldn't get out, up and not even think about how you're dressed and not even think about what you're facing that day. You wouldn't do that in your physical life with your physical looks. How do you expect to win over sin if you give no thought in the morning or at the end of the day? about these seven excellent virtues in your life. What's the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying this, look, you need to see them, you need to put them on, and then you need to perfect them. But the way that you perfect them, the way that you get them straight, the, what makes it work is love. There were some teenagers talking about their parents. And uh, they were talking really about how stupid mom and dad were. I mean, it just, that, that was just, to put it simply, it's irreverent and uh, uh, not very respectful, but that was just a conversation. They were just sitting around talking about how stupid their parents were. One of them said, yeah, my old man, he does this and that. And the other one said, my old lady, she, you know, just terrible language. And um, so uh, finally, one of them turned to a young man who had been rather silent. And uh, they said, what about your folks? They give you grief like our parents give us grief? And he said, uh, not really. He said, the truth of the matter is, I think I've got the best mom and the best dad in the world. And they started laughing at it. They said, what do you mean? Parents aren't like that. Parents are just, they're just there to keep you from having fun. No, he said, I really mean it. He said, I can't explain it. I've got the best mom and the best dad in the world. And so one of them said something like this. They said, well, I suppose they went to some classes to learn how to be a good mom and dad. He said, no, I don't think they did. Well, they, they must read a lot of books about it, about how to stay out of your way. And, no, he says, really, they don't. He said, well, I suppose they never do anything that disappoints you. He said, well, the truth of the matter is, sometimes I can't logically figure out where they're headed, and I don't know why they're asking me to do some of the things that I do. They seem a little crazy to me. But he said, I'll tell you, I have the best mom and the best dad in the world. Well, they said, if, if, they, if they don't do what you want them to do and let you have what you want to have and they act crazy to you, how can you say they're the best mom and the best dad in the world? Because he said, I'll tell you this, there's one thing I never question about mom and dad. They love God, they love each other, and they love me. You see, what ties it all together is love. The reason we do not win over sin is the lack of love for Jesus as Lord of our lives. If we love God, we will want to be godly. We'll want to be holy. We'll look at these seven excellent virtues there in the closet. We'll take them out, we'll put them on, and we will allow His love to cause them to operate together. Love covers, the Scripture says. Upon top of these, put on love, which are the ligaments that hold it all together. Perfect love. It's a kind of love you can only find in God. It's a kind of love you can only experience if you know God through Jesus Christ, His Son. It's a kind of love you can only express 
if Jesus, who is your Savior, is honored as Lord of your life. Listen, dear friend, if you'll put on these seven excellent virtues, you can win over sin. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. Heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And Father, I pray in the moments that are to follow that your Holy Spirit will just stir the heart of every one of us here. Show us, Heavenly Father, how to win over sin. Thank you for not leaving us without a strategy. But Father, this morning there are those who would say, I don't know the love of God, and I have not loved him, and I have not received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And Father, I pray this morning they will come to experience your wonderful love and your forgiveness and then become the kind of person who can forgive others. Father, I pray trusting that Christ will be made real to every person here. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as he is made real, the heart of every one of us will be drawn to him. And I pray it in Jesus' name. While your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, would you stand quietly to your feet? In just a few moments, our choir is going to lead us as we sing a hymn of invitation. This is your invitation to come to Christ. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. In a few moments, I'm going to lead us in one more brief closing prayer. In a few moments, when we begin to sing, I'm going to ask those of you who've made decisions in earlier days and have not been introduced to your new church family, maybe you've been baptized this morning or in one of our other services recently, maybe you've joined our church recently and you've not been introduced to your new church family, well, I'm going to ask you to come and just uh, be seated over here to my left, to your right, where it says seating for new members. And your coming is going to encourage other people to come and experience what you've already experienced. And I believe there's some here this morning who would say, I believe the Lord's speaking to my heart. I believe I ought to join this church. I believe we ought to join this church on this Memorial Day. And some people are already coming to this altar, and I'm going to ask you to come and, and just join with them. And these counselors are here. God bless you, dear lady. And others, you just step out to the aisle and make your way forward as folks are coming. I believe there are some people to whom the Lord is saying, look, today is your day. In your heart, you know that I'm calling you. And I want to encourage you, dear friend, to make your way to this altar. Find a counselor and say, look, I want eternal life. Or I want to know God's love and forgiveness. Just think all the sins for all of time in your life can be washed away if you'll receive Christ. Because he died on the cross. He paid the wages of sin, which is death. And he's risen from the grave, and he'll give you eternal life. You can leave this place this morning knowing that you're on your way to heaven. Your sins are forgiven. And I would encourage you to come and find a counselor and say, look, I want to trust Jesus this morning. Father in heaven, I pray trusting that your Holy Spirit now will do his work in our lives. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.